It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now, you know how I'm often saying that if you want to leave a comment about our podcast, you can go to Apple iTunes. Well, I checked in and wanted to read a couple of them so people will have a kind of a motivation to, to do that. I can't open the phone lines. It's not a talk radio show, but I like to know what the audience is thinking. So somebody called Perspectives Rights. I'm a liberal-leaning person who appreciates Kurtz's ability to connect the dots on multiple levels of observation. Multiple levels sounds pretty deep. Uh, here's one that just uh, is titled Kudos to Howie. I start my news-consuming day with this podcast. While not right-leaning himself, Howie's is the only MSM voice calling out the rest of the mainstream media for their shameful and shameless bias against conservatives. He's that rarest of a rare breed, a neutral reporter. I worked in the media for three decades, this person says, and there used to be a lot of guys like him. Thank goodness there still is at least one. Keep up the good work, Howie, and know that you can never retire. Now, I didn't know I was signing up for a lifetime commitment to this. I can never retire. Uh, I got to think about that one. Um, There was someone else who said, like, I I like the podcast, but you're doing too much gossip. And I I didn't quite get that because, you know, we have light items now and then. But basically, I'm dealing with serious S here, right? I mean, we're talking about COVID and uh, the economy and impeachment and charges of a stolen election uh, and how President Biden is doing uh, in his uh, debut as the 46th president. Um, and sometimes, you know, social media stuff and Twitter and the impact on pandemic on daily lives. But I think for, for some people, when I say sources told the New York Times or the Washington Post is quoting senior administration officials saying they think that's gossip. That it shouldn't be reported if people don't put their names to it. And I, look, I de- generally agree that unnamed sources in politics is way, way, way overused. I've been saying this for 25 years. It's not that I've never used unnamed sources, and it depends on who it is. And to some extent, you're asking the viewer or the reader to trust you. Um, but I just think to ha- quote people blindly is taking gratuitous shots at whether it's Donald Trump or somebody who works for Trump or is an advisor to Trump or any public figure um, is not a good thing to do. I do think there are times when people would lose their jobs if they put their names to the allegations or the serious information they're providing and therefore, you know, handled in the right way, that can be helpful. And some of the people who didn't like the use of anonymous sources against President Trump didn't have any problem with it when it was used against President Obama. And then once we get deeper into the Biden administration, we'll have that as well. But I do appreciate the feedback. I do appreciate your listening. And uh, because people want serious uh, subjects, I'm going to go right to one right now. And that is, days before the Super Bowl, and this is from no less an authority than the Washington Post, America, we have another crisis. We're running out of chicken wings. Apparently, people like to buy up a whole bunch of chicken wings for the big game, which is this Sunday. By the way, I mean, you know, you got Tom Brady and Tampa Bay Bucks, you know, playing Patrick Mahonis and the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, There really just hasn't been that much pregame hype. I think a lot of it is COVID, and I think, I don't know. uh, It's just it's not a trash-talking kind of Super Bowl. Uh, Maybe that's part of it. But getting back to America's latest crisis, Uh, Apparently, I didn't know this, the chicken wing market uh, here in the U.S. of A. is dominated by the sports calendar and consumption and sales peak right before the Super Bowl and later again, March Madness. So wing prices have been flying high, get it, for months. And uh, now during the pandemic, uh, we're all eating a ton of chicken wings. So I guess the problem isn't so much that producers aren't making enough wings, but consumers want more and more. 
this, I think I'm going to file this on the first world problem. So I hope if you really want your chicken wings this Sunday that you will be able to get them. If not, there's a lot of other stuff you can eat. Uh, another interesting item here, uh, a guy who was the pollster uh, for the Trump 2020 campaign, Tony Fabrizio, a pollster has been around a long time, uh, has done a report obtained by Politico. It's essentially, the, the guts of it is, why did Trump lose? Um, and I'll just read a little bit, just an interesting historical um, perspective here. A majority of voters um, said they didn't find either presidential candidate honest or trustworthy. But Biden held a double-digit advantage over POTUS. POTUS's overall job approval was mixed with a majority of voters in the flip states, meaning Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, states that went from the red column to the blue column and helped Biden win the presidency, uh, disapproving while voters in the held states, Texas, Iowa, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, which the former president hung on to, were split down the middle. However, POTUS earned negative marks in both groups for the handling of coronavirus. And that, to me, is the takeaway. I said all year he'd be reelected or not reelected based on his handling of COVID-19. And I think these poll numbers bear it out, or at least this analysis from his pollster. Conversely, Anthony Fauci garnered nearly a three-to-one positive job approval on handling of coronavirus with Fauci detractors voting overwhelmingly for Trump, while Fauci supporters voted for Biden by wide margins, especially in the flipped states. So, you know, Trump repeatedly uh, picked fights and few, had feuds with Fauci. Uh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. But, you know, Fauci was, he now says quite candidly, you know, reluctantly contradicting him when he said things that the, the longtime doctor didn't uh, believe were, in, were supported by science. It's as simple as that. Um, so coronavirus was an issue, was, a, was the top issue in both states, more so in the flip states, but the top issue even in the states that Trump, the, the battleground states that Trump held on to. And Biden carried those voters, those who said it was the top issue, by nearly three to one. All right, let's fast forward now to today in 2021. Story number one. Uh, we have President Biden spending about two hours this last evening meeting with 10 Republican senators who had a counterproposal to his $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. So I'm glad they had this conversation. Everybody seemed to appreciate that this was a serious and substantive conversation. Uh, you know, one of the reasons, you know, obviously, a guy who's talked about unity and reaching across the aisle is going to take this meeting, right? But in addition... These 10 Republican senators, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think there's going to be a bipartisan agreement. And I'll read you some coverage that will suggest that I'm right. But if these 10 Republican senators somehow came up with a bipartisan compromise package that they could agree on, they could pass it uh, with 50 Democratic senators and 10 Republican senators. You'd reach that magic Senate number of 60 in which you could ward off any filibuster. And so I'm, I'm sure Biden would love to do that. His instincts as a longtime senator would be to compromise and cooperate. But I don't think he wants to compromise this much. After all, he won the election. He's only been in office a couple of weeks. And so I don't see it happening. But at least they're talking. Uh, so the problem for the GOP, I don't know if you call them moderates, but some of them are, um, is that their counterproposal is less than one third the size of what the president wants. So two-hour meetings, I said, Susan Collins, she's the leader of the group. Actually, Biden had called her 
to say, do you want to bring over some senators and we'll talk? She said, I, I, uh, the discussion was excellent, but I wouldn't say we came together on a package tonight. They're going to continue the talks, but I don't think for that long. I don't think the Biden and the Dems want to sit around here and negotiate this forever. Um, but obviously, Biden would love to be able to say this is a bipartisan deal. Um, Bill Cassidy, another Republican senator who is uh, in the Oval Office, he didn't concede anything. He said, let's have our staff share numbers and let's build on that. Uh, Cassidy said, if we're going to go forward as a country, we have to do a better job than we've been doing of figuring out where those who disagree with us are coming from. The president said at one point, we can all agree that we need to take care for those in need. So Jen Psaki had a statement on behalf of the White House after the talks were over saying that the president reiterated that he will not slow down work on this urgent crisis response and will not settle for a package that fails to meet the moment. Fails to meet the moment means he's got to be big enough that Biden feels like he's getting most of what he wants. That's kind of the way it works after an election. Uh, New York Times says there's scant evidence that any Democrat so we're seriously considering embracing a proposal as limited as the ones the Republicans have laid out. So, you know, I would say, you know, and I, there are complicated layers here of what's in and what's out. But, you know, for this to have any chance of success, I think the GOP would have to have come in uh, with a package that was at least half of what Biden wants. And then you negotiate, you take some things out, you keep some things and maybe you end up with something that's three quarters. I mean, the Democrats control everything right now. By the narrowest of margins, they control the Senate. They control the House also by a relatively narrow margin, and they control the White House. So they don't have to do this. They can do reconciliation, push it through, have the Republicans complain that all the talk about unity was BS, but still get the package they want. So I think you have to come closer uh, to a compromise between uh, 100% of what Biden wants and 50% of what Biden wants. That doesn't seem to be happening. So uh, just to catch you up on the details, what the Republicans want to do, they would agree to bigger stimulus checks, but it would be 1000 bucks instead of 1400 bucks for individuals. They would agree to the extended uh, unemployment aid, but they would only extend it through June instead of September. They would do $300 instead of $400 a week. Uh, you know, that's at least in the ballpark of where you can split the differences. Uh, Todd Young, a uh, Senate Republican from Indiana, says that their plan is a way to rein in Biden's proposal, which some de Republicans are saying is a bailout of states run by Democrats. So this is what the Republicans always say. You know, these states, these blue states, they spend so much money, these governors are so liberal, and we're not going to come in and bail them out. Well, ordinarily, that's a fine argument. But right now, we're in the middle of a coronavirus emergency. And many of these, there are many red states, just like blue states, that are running severe budget deficits, and the states are required by law, 49 of them are, to balance their budgets. So they're going to have to lay off all kinds of workers, even if they do spend too much. They're going to have to lay off, and that's going to hurt the economic recovery. So uh, Biden officials remain adamant about having at least some money for local and state governments. Zero is going to be a non-starter. Um, and they're willing to um, scale back total number so they're not saying my way or the highway. Uh, and they're willing to reduce the state and local aid. But officials remain adamant, says the Times, that more money is necessary for unemployed workers, impoverished families to pay for food and housing, and for schools seeking the resources to reopen safely. I mean, I think the schools are crucial here. It's unbelievable that we're coming up on a year and some schools are still doing virtual learning. And you have the situation in Chicago with the teachers union refusing to go along. Fortunately, that's been one of the bright spots. Most of the schools that have reopened 
and colleges have done it without massive outbreaks. But you got to have money, and particularly in poorer school districts, to you know have air circulation and all of that. So that remains a major issue. Story number two: the comments by Mitch McConnell yesterday really are eye-opening. For one thing, this sort of this tradition on Capitol Hill may be dumb, but that's the way it works. That senators don't get too involved in what the House members are doing, and the House doesn't get too involved in what the Senate is doing, except when they have to come together in what's called a conference committee to settle the differences between like, when they pass different versions of the same legislation. But Mitch McConnell, who, remember, went to the floor, said, I recognize Joe Biden as president-elect, and also went to the floor and said President Trump incited the violence at the Capitol on, on January 6th, but then, last week, voted to throw out the trial, not to have a trial. He was one of the 45 Senate Republicans. Um, maybe because Trump's already, off, already out of office, but maybe, I think, also because, you know, he doesn't want to be one of five or six outliers in his party. He's supposed to lead the party. He's the Senate minority leader now. And he doesn't have the troops. But in the ongoing verbal warfare, which I've talked about in recent days over Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of the crazy conspiracy theories that she has endorsed, and some of the comments that at least her Facebook page has liked about executing Nancy Pelosi, etc. Um, Mitch McConnell is now weighing in. This is what he said, and The Hill was the first to report this. Mitch McConnell said, he didn't name Marjorie Taylor Greene, but everybody knows who he's talking about. Loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party and our country. That's not exactly mincing words. Here's the leader of the Senate Republicans calling out uh, a newly elected Georgia congresswoman of the same party uh, who is getting as much attention as anybody in the GOP right now for the things that she has said on videos, things she said about school shootings, and so on. McConnell continues, somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged, and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. So uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene shot back with a tweet. She said that McConnell that the real cancer on the party was weak Republicans who only know how to lose gracefully. But that's not all that Mitch had to say. So he absolutely just lambastes um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And by the way, this puts his counterpart in the House, Kevin McCarthy, in a kind of a tough position because McCarthy hasn't really criticized her. Oh, I have some concerns. supposed to talk to her this week. Hasn't done so yet. So whatever McCarthy does, you know, he's kind of caught between twin forces in the party. Most of the Republican Party doesn't want to kick Marjorie Taylor Greene off committees or censure her. And some in the Republican Party do think at the very least she should be stripped of her committee assignments. Well, McConnell also weighed in on Liz Cheney because as many people, including me, have pointed out, the Republican Party is trying very hard, at least many House Republicans are trying very hard, to punish Liz Cheney by stripping her her number three House leadership post because she voted for impeachment the second time, while essentially giving Marjorie Taylor Greene a pass. So here's what McConnell says. Liz Cheney is a leader with deep convictions and the courage to act on them. She's an important leader in our party, in our nation. I'm grateful for her service. Look forward to working with her, blah, blah, blah. So here's McConnell 
basically taking a really strong stance on the civil war. And I don't have a better phrase. There is a civil war going on now for the future of GOP. Is it going to be controlled by Donald Trump, who had a call with Marjorie Taylor Greene and said he supports her? Uh, or is it going to be con- controlled, at least in part, uh, by Republicans who, even if they are not never Trumpers, and even if they supported most of what Trump wanted during his four years in office, uh, kind of feel like it's time to move on from the Trump era, which the former president obviously has no desire to do. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, let me get now to story number three, because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in another one of these uh, Instagram live videos, has made a lot of news, and it's pretty serious stuff. Um, Now, You'll recall, and look, obviously she's a lightning rod. She's a hero to the left wing of the Democratic Party. She's now a sophomore member of Congress from Queens and the Bronx. Uh, She also goes very hard after Republicans that she doesn't like. Uh, The right wing can't stand her, also can't stop talking about her. Uh, And so even though in the terms of congressional seniority, she's not a leader of the Democratic Party, in terms of her mastery of social media and just the amount of pure, sheer media coverage she attracts pro and con, she's one of the most prominent Democrats in the country. Well, she's already talked about how worried she was on January 6th during the siege at the Capitol and how she thought she might lose her life. Well, she's come back to say more. And I'm going to read some of it. And if you are interested, you can go watch what she has to say in her own voice. She disclosed for the first time that she is a sexual assault survivor. And she said this during an even more personal and really raw account of what, how, what she experienced during the riot at the Capitol uh, on January 6th. Here's the quote, I'm a survivor of sexual assault, and I haven't told many people that in my life. But when we go through trauma, trauma compounds on each other. So what she is doing is in disclosing really publicly for the first time that she is a sexual assault victim, and she doesn't provide many details about that. She's trying to connect that to what she, and she would say many other members, it's not just Democrats, obviously, went through, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi's made counseling services available to people who thought, you know, I mean, there were people there with guns, with clubs. Um, Obviously, a Capitol policeman was beaten to death. They were scared. You don't get over that in a week or a month. It haunts you. It stays with you. She recalled hiding in a bathroom and hearing a man's voice yelling, where is she? And she assumed it was somebody coming for her. So that male voice apparently belonged to a Capitol Police officer who found her. And she said, looked at her and said, are you all right? But she said he looked at her with a tremendous amount of anger and hostility. She also recalled taking shelter in the office of uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter, another Democrat, was having a cup of coffee when uh, AOC came in and told her, and Katie Porter confirms this, I thought I was going to die. During this video, she appeared to wipe away tears. She said, I felt if this was the journey my life was taking, I felt things were going to be okay. You know, I'd fulfilled my purpose. Um, And she says that those who are saying to move on, this is where she makes that connection, are using the same tactics of of every other abuser who just tells you to move on. They were the tactics, she suggested, of that man who touched you inappropriately at work telling you to move on. And a Washington Post write-up notes that um, 
Federal prosecutors have charged one alleged Capitol rioter with threatening in a tweet to assassinate AOC. So she says she was getting texts and warnings in, in the week before the January 6th uh, riot that she needed to be concerned about her life. But now, you know, just when you are feeling, you know, I, I don't think anybody can listen to this or watch this and not feel some sympathy. You may not like her as a person. You may despise her, her liberal policies. But that nobody should have to go through that. And she's not the only one. She just talks about it in a more emotional way than many other people. But in the same video, she demanded that Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley resign um, because she blames them. And, you know, she had the famous tweet, I guess it was just a few days ago, about I don't want to hear from you, Ted Cruz, because uh, it was only three weeks ago that, you know, you almost had me murdered. And that's where I part company with AOC. That, look, Cruz, Hawley, any Republican who said, hey, you know what would be a great idea? Let's not certify Joe Biden. Let's, let's reject the Electoral College results. You know, did they play a contributing role in riling up the protesters who came to town at the former president's urging and then, you know, committed violence? Yeah. Did they want violence? They deliberately want uh, these people to storm the Capitol? Did they want some of their colleagues, even those they disagree with, killed? No, I don't believe that. And I think there, that's where Ocasio-Cortez goes too far. Interestingly, Ted Cruz on his own podcast, who obviously has been one of the biggest supporters of Trump, although they hated each other in the 2016 campaign, and, you know, has talked a lot about election fraud, and that's why he wanted to not to have a protest where members of Congress, and he got, there were 10 Republican senators, and there were 136 Republican House members who wouldn't certify the election. Cruz now says on his podcast, President Trump's rhetoric, I think, went way too far over the line. I think it was both reckless and irresponsible because he said repeatedly, he said over and over, he won by a landslide. There was massive fraud. It was all stolen everywhere. That evidence, the campaign did not prove that in any court. And to make a determination about an election, it has to be based on the evidence. And so simply saying the result you want, that's not responsible. Well, that's a big climb down for Ted Cruz to say Trump's rhetoric was reckless and irresponsible and was never proven in any court. Because if you believe that, Senator Cruz, then why did you not vote to certify Biden? Uh, This is, I think, Cruz trying to deal with all the criticism by saying, hey, you know what? I don't endorse everything that Donald Trump said. I don't think there was massive fraud. Uh, I just had some problems. What, What was there? It wasn't massive fraud. There was just some fraud, minor league fraud, not major league fraud. Uh, But it's interesting that... um, he felt the need to say this and obviously did it on his own podcast so he could control the message. Story number four, uh, Joe Biden is pursuing a whole lot of liberal policies. I'm not shocked by that. Neither are you. That's what he ran on. Uh, interesting column by National View editor Rich Lowry. I often quote him as a voice of the responsible right. Uh, somebody who has criticized Trump repeatedly, certainly in recent weeks, about the violence in the Capitol and the incitement. Um, and And Lowry writes that Biden's off to the most left-wing start of any Democratic president in recent memory, that his uh, appeal for unity in his inauguration speech already seems like an artifact of a bygone era. Um, The fact is, says Lowry, Biden is governing, as he promised, further to the left of his own record, further to the left of Barack Obama, further to the left of any Democrat who made his career prior to the ascendancy of the cultural left. Biden layers on top of this a cultural agenda 
that represents a new dimension of radicalism that would be alien and baffling to past Democrats who may have wanted to extend the New Deal but never sought to transcend the gender binary. He talks about the $15 an hour minimum wage, which used to be a socialist pipe dream, massive bailout, there's that word again, to states and localities, uh, Biden's obsession with fighting climate change, speaks of an overwhelming hostility to fossil fuels. On the other hand, General Motors says it wants to make all electric cars in 12 years. Uh, his, what he calls, uh, amnesty for more than 10 million illegal immigrants. Although Biden has, uh, is now pushing an uh, immigration proposal that keeps some of the Trump enforcement mechanisms, and we'll talk about that another time. Uh, Rich concludes by saying Biden, who's never been woke himself, is attempting to deliver victories to the left wing of his party that would have been almost unimaginable eight or 12 years ago and to do it quickly. Well, on the substance, Lowry's right. You know, Barack Obama didn't run on many of the things. He couldn't have. The country wasn't there. The Democratic Party wasn't there. I think the danger for Joe Biden is that he goes too far AOC. He goes too far Bernie Sanders. The reasons he won is that he wasn't for Medicare for All, that he wasn't for, you know, an unbelievably, ridiculously expensive Green New Deal. But especially on cultural stuff, you know, he is trying to sort of satisfy. He's trying to split the difference. Just as Republicans have their own civil war, he's trying to keep the progressives on board while showing um, the overall Democratic base, which is liberal, but not as liberal as Twitter, um, that he's willing to deliver on his promises but not go crazy. And that, I think, is going to be a central storyline in the opening months and eventually for the whole term of President Joe Biden. Story number five gets to um, the more personal impact of the pandemic, which I've been talking about now and then. The Atlantic has a really interesting piece here about meetings, business lunches, work trips. All these things will still happen in the afterworld, meaning when we finally get the virus under control, we finally have enough Americans vaccinated, and that can't happen soon enough for me. But the Atlantic says nobody will forget the lessons we were just forced to learn. Telecommunications doesn't have to be the perfect substitute for in-person meetings as long as it's mostly good enough. For the most part, remote work just works. Well, you lose a lot, and the piece acknowledges this, and I miss a lot of the contact that I have when I went to an office every day and saw colleagues who just, you know, on a social level, on a professional level, on a human level. But interestingly, some of the hottest uh, re- rental markets in big cities are heading south. So you know, that includes um, San Francisco, where a lot of people, you know, if you don't have to live in San Francisco to work for a tech company, and you can go out to cheaper areas of California, if you don't have to live in Manhattan, if you don't have to live uh, in some of these sort of hot coastal cities, why not, since the housing is so expensive, if we're moving into an era of more telework or telecommuting, whatever the hell you want to call it, this could be a sea change. In other words, this could outlast the pandemic. Uh, the Atlantic says remote work could do to America's residential geography in the 2020s what the interstate highway system did in the 50s and 60s, spread it out. California lost more people to outmigration than any other state in 2020. And the five largest states in the Northeast, this is New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, joined California in the top 10 losers. The rents have fallen fastest in these pricey coastal cities, including Frisco, Seattle, L.A., Boston, and New York. And home values uh, are growing below the national average. So what's happening here is a lot of people who ordinarily would like to work for not just tech companies, but big companies. And, you know, it's cool to live in downtown areas. It's cool to live in uh, Greenwich Village in New York. It's cool, cool, it's cool to live 
in um, Santa Monica in California. It's cool to live in a lot of these places. But now home values are rising across the Sun Belt, Phoenix, Nashville, Austin. They're rising in Midwestern cities, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Indianapolis. And they're going gangbusters in the Southeast, uh, which has 13 of the top 25 cities with the fastest growth in, in migration. The top three cities for inbound moves were all in one state, Florida. So could this be a positive trend? These superstar cities, as the magazine says, have become playgrounds for the wealthy, especially the childless wealthy, uh, because of zoning and other stuff. You know, it's just, it used to be if you were just a young person starting out and you wanted to move to Manhattan, you could get, you know, a walk-up apartment there. It's hard to do now. These are super expensive cities. So one weird possibility, according to the Atlantic, as I wrap this up, is that the whole concept of a metropolitan hub just kind of evaporates as uh, companies embrace the reality of a permanently distributed workforce. And here's the, the short, here's the soundbite. What if the next Silicon Valley is nowhere or just as precisely everywhere? What if you don't need a Silicon Valley or a tech alley? What if, you know, people can do the work from wherever the hell they want, places that they've, maybe places that weren't considered super cool before, whether it's the Midwest or the Southeast? I don't know that that would be such a terrible thing. I don't want uh, cities. I love cities. I grew up in New York City. I love cities. The culture, the restaurants, all of that. Cities are having a hard time. I don't want to see them damaged, but if, you know, if fewer people live there and they're not quite as crowded and that eases the burden on public transport and other parts of the country can have a bit of a renaissance, I think I'd be for it. I'm not convinced this is going to happen. I don't know what the hell is going to happen when the pandemic is over, but I hope it's over soon. And I bet you do too. Thank you for listening. You know where you can subscribe. Nice to have uh, the inbox every day. Leave a comment on Apple iTunes if you so desire. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.